I'm Tim. And I'm Nathan. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Tim, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? So, uh, yeah, I'm a game developer, longtime friend of Jim, and uh, I just shipped a game called Pathless on PS5 and PC and all sorts, uh, iOS. So, um, yeah, that's what I've been up to. And Nathan? I'm Nathan Fouts of Monusos Games. And we are very slowly releasing new versions of Shoot One Up DX, which is a remaster of my Shoot Em Up game in which you get to control all your spaceships at the same time. And it just came out on Xbox One. It is out on Switch in North America. It'll be out in Europe soon. And we're working on the PS4 version right now. And the PS5 version. Why not? Uh, that always seemed like a good idea to me. You know how... Galaga's big idea was that you could control two of your lives at once. That was like the the thing about that game. Yeah, you attached on, right? Yeah, like why not? Why not all of them? Yes, I love seeing new people finding out about this game, even though it's you know ten years old, and um, their reaction is awesome. But it also makes me sad in the sort of like forever scrolling timeline of of like new content that you're fed all the time they'll go cool so it's a shoot them up and you get to control your ships all at once that's a really neat idea what else and i'm like that's revolutionary you're welcome and i'll see you later <laughs> that's all i've got <laughs> like so yeah kind of um the reviews are good though but it makes me a little crazy because they're just like scroll 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 it out anything else anything else anything else i'm like nah that's that's a lot man do, for me do you have impeccable art direction because if uh, not, like nobody gives a shit. You've got you've got co-op. Yeah. And you've got street cred. You've been around. Like that's got to count for something. Yeah. I also like it because the my art style is um, consistently polarizing. I always like heavy. I like heavy metal magazine and like gritty, gross, wacky, garbage pail kid stuff. And so it shows up pretty often in reviews. That they love it or they hate it. The art stuff. So doesn't heavy metal do that kind of like Boris Vallejo thing sometimes? <laughs> yeah, dude. Yes. <laughs> Love him. The funniest Boris painting ever is the one where he's opening a champagne bottle and the he's giant bottle. and muscular. It's so good. It's it's legendary. I'm friends with his his uh, his uh, stepson. Oh, wow. He, he's a Magic of the Gathering uh, artist, actually. Yeah, when we were kids, we would be in the, you know, like the bookstores and looking just staring just sitting back there forever just goggling the art ogling and going on and on and on and that 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 champagne picture was the best it's then, it's it's just it's art it's real art. yeah it's, it's really really funny i also i was a little bit crushed when i found out that he used <laughs> reference art like i was like you know 12 or something i'm like wait you can just look at people and paint them? That's kind of cheating, man. I thought I thought he was imagining these pictures <laughs> and painting them. Learn that trick. Actually, our uh, our if you if you play Jamestown, our uh, cutscene images are by uh, by his stepson. Whoa! Uh, he he did he did the paintings. Yeah, they're great. He, and he did he did a lot of photo references, what made me think of it. Uh, yeah. Uh, he's a brilliant painter, and he's a friend of ours. So he's like, "Sure, I'll I'll do your, your paintings for your story sequences." Those are pretty. They're worth looking at. I love the scroll on them. They look really good. Just like pans across. That's yeah, great. Uh, he's an incredible artist. It's it's weird to me that someone would know someone related to Boris Vallejo at all. So the fact that <laughs> yeah. there's someone on the podcast 
<laughs> uh, is, is, it makes me wonder, like, one of these episodes, is somebody going to name drop Tom of Finland? <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, you know, uh, you, gotta, you have quite a cast that comes on here, uh, people with interesting connections. That's true, yeah. Are we, are we ready for some topics? I'm ready. Yeah. All right, let me pull up the bucket here. Uh, Nathan, your first topic. Are there any negatives to having an easy mode that takes the player through the entire game? Should the best ending be locked somehow in easy mode? So I'm playing Katsui on PS4, the port, and the shoot 'em up, and um, it's like a cave game, and it does all the cave things, and like hold down the button and you get a mega blast, and you go a little bit slower, and all those games feel the same to me, and I and I like them like the way hamburgers taste good. I like you can't mess up a hamburger. So if you play a cave game, it's like the backgrounds are relevant. I always like that they try to make the art different. But then it doesn't matter because you're just staring at pink blobs all the time or blue blobs, um, the bullets. But anyway, what blew my mind was they have super easy mode and they have arcade mode. And I a lot of times cave games like Dodon Patchy and all those, they have like black label and death label and all these kinds of different extra modes. So I didn't know what I was getting into with Katsui. But it turns out it's really neat. Everything is trying to funnel you into one CCing, one credit clearing arcade mode. And that's it. And, and everything is trying to help you with that. And I thought that was really cool. It's M2 is doing it. I think the Sega group. So there's a super easy mode. And what blew my mind was super easy flipped everything on its head where it just said, yeah, you get to see the whole game. And not only that, we're going to unlock the true final boss. You get to fight the true final boss. And I was like, that's really weird. That's a big surprise for me. So I, it's like sort of like a thing where you're just like, oh, sure, you can have easy mode, but you'll only see, you know, 90% of the game. Yeah, it's subverting that, that uh, long-held assumption, which is that you have to earn uh, the, the privilege of seeing the whole game. Uh, Wait, so, so, so in, in regular easy mode, can you not see the final boss? In almost most games like that, you don't get the last... But I mean, in, in that game, is it like, as you would expect in regular easy mode, where it's limited, but then in super easy mode, they flip it around and say, okay, if you're that bad, we'll just give it all to you. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to recount to you how you get to see the true final boss. And if you're wearing socks, they will be disintegrated by the end of this description. All right, okay, I'm you ready? my socks right now. Check the socks because... Or just take them off. If they're good ones and you don't want them destroyed, because these will blow them apart. No, they're fine. Um, I can get yeah, these. It's fine. I'm, we yeah, I'm wearing some nice winter socks. Okay, Katsui, if I remember, true um, true final boss, who is called Evacaneer Doom, all caps. You have to <clears throat> loop the game twice. No deaths. No bombs. And get to the final boss. It's ridiculous. That's actually how uh, uh, Dodonpachi is the same way. That's their tradition um, with Hibachi in uh, Dodonpachi. It's the same way. I've never done it. Um, oh, yeah, me neither. <laughs> but I, I did. I did try. But actually, Katsui is my uh, my favorite cave shoot 'em up. It's the one, like you said. I just go back to it because it's super enjoyable. Uh, I agree about a lot of what you were saying about kind of it being um, a you know, the backgrounds being somewhat forgettable. I don't think it's true of all of their games. Like, I do think that, like, um, uh, Mushihime-sama really does have a distinct character that's memorable. But, yeah, overall, um, people miss a lot of whatever you put into the backgrounds. But, you know, um, the difficulty... So, in Jamestown, we had a system where uh, you you could play the first, I think it was three out of five levels on the lowest difficulty. 
and then you had to, in order to unlock the next level, you had to beat them on the second difficulty. And then the same for the final level, you had to complete the first four levels on the third out of five difficulties. And um, we got a lot of flack for that and also a lot of uh, support. It was really interesting. There, I think it plays into human psychology. There are some people who want to be have a carrot dangled in front of them. There's a sort of um, masochistic quality to the way that the player interacts with the game, their relationship with the developer. They want to be challenged. They want to be forced to do something that's difficult or maybe even unpleasant in order to feel that sense of satisfaction when they're given what they want. And so we took that angle also because we wanted to let people have the satisfaction of actually becoming good at a shoot 'em up game. So one of the issues I would have with a super easy Katsui mode is when all is said and done, what have you taken from it? In what way have you grown as a player? And, and that's not necessarily why people play games, but that's something I like to have in games that I play. Just even games like uh, those walking games like uh, Pokemon Go, when it's all said and done, you you walked somewhere, right? You gained some modicum of cardiovascular um, activity for it, right? Some amount of um, betterment of yourself. Uh, so when I look at um, you know Jamestown, one of the things I'm very satisfied about the approach we took is that um, many players who have never played a shoot 'em up game and don't play particularly difficult games. Uh, were eased in gently through the, the progression that we made and came to the end of it, actually finished the final boss and did so in a way that was somehow meaningful. They knew that they had really played an actual bullet hell. And if they went to another bullet hell game, they could clear the first few levels uh, comfortably because they'd actually gained skill. So that's something that I thought was really interesting. I have a lot of regret about how we approached that personally. I would have liked if we had had an option for people who didn't have the interest or the capacity to do that. The plan was you would always be able to play co-op with your friends and co-op would, would enable players who were differently able to get through the game socially. And that worked for those who had people to play with. I, you know, I played with uh, one of our testers who came in had never um, used a mouse before. We were, we were sort of, it was an interesting uh, experiment to see what would happen when somebody wasn't at all familiar with video games, truly. And uh, we got through the first level together and she had a good time. And uh, I remember feeling really satisfied that we'd uh, managed that. So the co-op for us was kind of our accessibility angle. But, you know, I've seen the stats on how many people play the co-op and um, that's, a, that's a fraction of a fraction of people. <laughs> Um, and I think psychologically, uh, we've been drifting more towards like what you, the value you get out of a game is seeing all the content. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, a super, like, I think that's a valid thing to want to, to get out of a piece of media. But then there's also, as you were saying, the psychological factor of like, you value it more if you have to work for it. And if you have that explicit, like super easy mode there's going to be a certain contingent of people who are like, well, even if I worked for it, I could have just taken the super easy mode and seen everything anyway. So they'll value it less. Mm -hmm. And so maybe the, the right approach is something like to use cheat codes where like just slightly on the other side of like, well, that wouldn't really be playing the game, you know? For those, for those kind of people. Essentially to draw a line for them and say, look, we drew a line here. And you can treat this line as a wall or not. That's something that we are, we are delineating it for you as 
out of bounds, but we won't actually stop you from walking over there. But we're, we are saying it's not, it's against the rules, so it doesn't count, but you can totally do it. And I think that that actually is, for a lot of people, extremely different. I remember um, you played uh, Save the Date, right? By, uh, I did. Chris Cornell. So there's a, there's a whole theme in that game of, um, of sort of wanting the game to tell you, you know, in, in that particular game to give you a happy ending, but there are no happy endings. You, you can't win. <laughs> uh, but, the, but he, but he, he gave like a, a way to hack the game. It's built in and, and you can go out there, you can hack the script and write your own happy ending and it'll be in the game and it's official. And that's one of the many interesting endings to that game. And I think that it's, it's, uh, it's telling that people need it to be official. They need it to be sanctioned by the creator. They need to have that intent. I think that the um, reality is if you say, here's super easy mode, you're basically saying, go for it. You know, in Jamestown, our lowest difficulty is called normal because we wanted to sanction that as a valid way of playing, a completely authentic and legitimate way of playing. But other games like um, was it Wolfenstein have like, you know, you know, little baby mode like they, they, they sort of mock the player for playing at the lowest level. I think in some way that is expressing judgment and intent to the player. I mean, they, they, they did that in Devil Engine and that was definitely a negative and it was a really hardcore game. And I think the only two difficulty settings are super easy and super hard. And and they and they say as much like in a tech in a subtext below it that you know you're weak if you play this, which is kind of plays to the hardcore crowd. But that's what I thought was interesting about the Katsui is they call it super easy. Oh, by the way, it's not. It's not super easy. <laughs> it's still a very reasonable shoot 'em up to play. Mm-hmm. It's fun. You're, you're you're engaged, right? Yeah. Well, I actually played at the end of the night, about one one thirty or so, and I played for about thirty minutes, and I love it because I kind of just zone out, and I'm pretty good at them. I'm not great, but at, on super easy in that, I can pretty much maybe die occasionally. That's it, and it's fun. But if you play the real mode, yeah, I got I've got to basically wake up to play it. But uh, for she went up DX, and for our next port, we're doing Explosion Aid, Explosion Aid DX, and that's got that's a mech game, and we're putting more levels in it. What we're doing is, I actually remastered every single level for three different difficulties, and the AI is different. So by the time you get to serious mode, like the hard mode, it's pretty challenging, and you and you get to see new enemies. So you play the whole game, but you get new content. So, I mean, it's kind of the traditional, you know, gating thing, like of meeting out the content via difficulties. That's what we did for, for Jamestown. Yeah, I think that was a good move, by the way. Did you ever play the fifth difficulty? Most people don't, is why I asked. No, we never, I never got there. And that was, yeah, I think I played through normal and then the next one. Yeah, legendary, or what is it? What was it? Normal, difficult. Um, yeah, it was normal, difficult, legendary, uh, divine, and then judgment. And the judgment difficulty uh, is completely different. It break, it has a new mechanic where there are bullets which you uh, your shield doesn't work on. They go right through your shield. Uh, the patterns are different. The bosses are different. And, and that's the only difference, though. We don't change health totals or spawn more enemies or anything like that. And throughout all the difficulties, we do things like that. And that took an enormous amount of work to do five difficulties. So I have great appreciation for what you're talking about. It's, it's involved. Uh, we also had to do things like, um, you know, was, we couldn't automatically do it. We had to hand touch most of it because there's a kind of a sweet spot in shoot-em-ups where like the, 
the super slow bullets and super fast bullets are both very difficult. The slow ones stick around as obstacles that you kind of have to avoid persistently. And then the fast ones, you have a reaction time element where you have to react quickly enough. So um, there's a sweet spot in the middle. And it turns out that, you know, scaling speed up and down is not really a valid solution for difficulty balancing. You kind of have to re you have to adjust it, remove bullets and like that. But anyway, um, yeah, I think it's an interesting topic. Have we have we satisfied it at this point? Do we want to move on? Sure. So we can move on to the next topic, which is Tim. Uh, your topic is why are we drawn to art that disturbs, depresses, or scares? And yes, catharsis is a weak answer. <laughs> like it's like such a lazy answer. It's not necessarily wrong. It's just like <laughs> I don't think people have given it as much thought as they ought to. I think there is a cathartic element to those kinds of. Um, emotions but I, I don't think that's the whole picture you you mentioned you had some thoughts on this right Jim? yeah yeah what i said was oh oh i know this one <laughs> <laughs> are you gonna psychoanalyze me Jim, i'm gonna I'd psychoanalyze like the entire human race <laughs> I, I i think there are two things here one is that um people like heightened emotions i guess this is just one thing people like heightened emotions and no emotion is as easy to heighten as the bad ones. Like if you're feeling fear or, or horror, like that something terrible is happening, you're going to have a stronger emotional reaction than something that, than the equivalent level of something good happening. Uh, And so I think what people are looking for when they go into that is they want to be aroused like you would on a roller coaster. And I think when people think back on like the, emotional experiences that media have given them they think more highly of the ones that that have terrorized them or made them feel bad than the ones that make them feel good because those emotions are stronger and they're easier to elicit i think they're also sometimes quite unusual they're they're not as as um common they're harder i think actually to elicit for me at least you know it takes a a more you have to kind of earn it a little bit uh, I won't even say more, but like, you know, laughter, right? You know, you know those times when you, you watch a comedy sketch and you laugh and, and you think to yourself, wow, I feel like I'm reaching new levels of laughter in my recent memory. This is like legitimately funnier than what I've seen recently. And, and it feels amazing. And I think that, uh, you know, it's hard to, to tell a good joke. It's hard to make someone laugh like that. I think it's also hard to make someone feel real authentic grief without uh, them really engaging in it and you having something uh, meaningful to share. And so there's a there's a, also an element of it's a um, it's like you're saying it's a heightened emotion it's it's a spike in in the amount of um, yeah the amount that you're feeling uh, I I seek this stuff out like crazy I know you often do not but uh, but it's weird like I will I will watch a horror movie but the reason I watched those as opposed to more like human drama movies is because I don't connect to them because they don't feel real like. Mm-hmm. I have a much more heightened reaction to um, a dramatic situation that I might run into in life um, mm-hmm. than I do to like horrible monsters and demons. I think horror, I think horror and fear and like murders and all that kind of stuff in shows. I think they're interesting because you don't run into them in regular life, so it's like a controlled situation, right? Where- it, and that's what I mean. Like I. I, I, there's a disconnect there. I don't feel an emotional connection to that particular fear. But that's what I guess there's a question there about whether you're really feeling it. So I had an interesting experience 
which was uh, when the, the Boston Marathon bombing happened. I was completely devastated by that uh, in a way that was really new to me because I, I lived overseas. I had been in Pakistan for years. Uh, a friend of mine was killed in a grenade attack. I've, I've experienced real acts of terrorism in my life that were disturbing and upsetting. And I was really surprised that the Boston Marathon bombing had affected me so much. And I, I tried to sort of sort out why it had, I mean, it was like a week. I was just, I was just unable to function. And I realized it was because I had run in a marathon very recently before that in Philadelphia. And it was the proximity. It was how, how vividly I could realize it, a sense that I brushed with uh, risk, with real mortal danger. The empathy I felt for the people who were at that place was as close as possible. I could, I could visualize it perfectly. And that, I think, gave me insight that when it connects to you, which is the thing that you're getting at, there, it's. I think it's because it's close to you. It, it, it's, it's plausible. It's real. It feels like a real experience. I, I sent you that link to that album. I don't think you ever listened to, uh, Real Death. No, <laughs> you, I don't remember that. No, it's not called Real Death. That's the name of the first track. It's called um, A uh, Crow Looked at Me. By, I don't remember that either. Um. So, so the album. Uh, I came across it because it was on Metacritic and it was it was rated as one of the top. 10 albums of, I think, the the decade, something ridiculous. And I looked at it and I was like, I, I recognize every one of these bands, every one of these acts, every one of these albums, except this one. And I was like, what, what the hell is this? And I, I pulled it up and I listened to it. And it had me crying within about a minute and a half. Like, it is unbelievably affecting. It is, it is uh, a man whose wife died slowly from cancer. And he wrote a bunch of journal entries while it was happening about his life in the wake of that. And then he went to the room where she died and played on her instruments, his songs. And it's unbelievable. It's because it's not, it's not just the con. Is it bad if I don't want to hear it? Well, that's the, that's the question. This is my point. Is this a, I know, I, know. I, I actually, I'm not, I don't know. I mean, like I feel bad for him, but I don't know if I want that. It's a well, weird. exactly. That's kind of the point, right? is that it's so close to you. It's so plausible. You know, you can tell from the outside. If you listen to that album, it's going to get to you because it's so real. It's so intimate. It's so proximate that he will make you able to understand at, on, on a personal level what that's like. And I think you can sense, ah, uh, that's too much. That's, that's like, uh, that's going to be an unpleasant, that's going to be a powerful experience, but really unpleasant. When I watched the um, that reboot of the movie It, it was really good and really scary for me. And I honestly was scared of my cellar after that for about a month. <laughs> it was a little close. Yeah, I would I would use the restroom and I would sit, be standing there and I would look at the cellar door and I was like, if the light turns on down there, on its own. I'm going to scream. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, you, you can visualize it, right? Yes, you can, I can you picture can, you it. You can place it into your it's, life. And it's I think right that's there, what gets that connection there. And he's going to, something's going to, if something happens automatic in my house, oh my gosh, you know, at two in the morning, I'm trying to go to bed. Yeah, freak well, out. That's generally the case with me. I, I'm sort of always in that state. There's a um, feeling that you get from uh, like a movie, like a scary movie. That to me is like, like three months. Like I don't watch scary movies, like legitimately scary movies. Cause it's like fully yeah. 
three months before I can wipe it from my my head. I watched that movie Shudder, uh, the one the the Thai uh, movie Shudder, uh, just with a friend. I, and, and man, that movie just uh, man, that took a long time to purge from my uh, <laughs> from my brain. Okay, well, I'll, I'll make this quick. But the thing I'm into right now, or have been for a while, has been old '70s um, Italian slasher movies because they're full of style. Full of amazing fashion and architecture. They're not really that scary. They're totally manageable. I love it. Because you love don't it. live in Italy. Yeah, I don't live in Italy, Italy in the 70s. Oh, man, they're so cool. But anyway, not really that scary, but just really need to watch. Yeah. Uh, this is, I'm gonna, I feel like I'm repeating myself here, but the, the horror movie that uh, fucked me up the most <laughs> recently was called Hereditary. I am not watching that. I heard about that. Ooh. The reason is that like the first half of the movie, maybe even more, is just about the fallout of a horrible car crash and the effect it has on a family. Ugh, too real. And like only like an hour and a half into the movie, do the demons appear? And you're already good by that point in time. You're already like, no, I've had, I've seen a horror show. This is a relief. This is like the clowns have showed up, and I'm like, oh. <laughs> yeah. So what you're saying is that Marriage Story is actually a horror movie. I couldn't finish that. Could not finish it. We watched like part of it. And once they got into the real shouting, I was like, I'm out. I'm not watching this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's interesting. But, but, and yet, it, it, you know, that's a, a great example of a, a movie that uh, moves people, is powerful, is memorable, changes how they see the world. It's, it's, it's a perfect candidate for like great film, won a bunch of awards. And yet, uh, it's, uh, it's not necessarily actually something you actually want to watch uh, for entertainment. Not for entertainment, no. <laughs> have either of you played That Dragon Cancer? <laughs> no, I have not. Have, have, do either of you know anybody who's played it? Yeah, I, I saw I saw people lining up at a party to play it, which I was like, boy, that is not my party yeah. vibe. <laughs> party material. Hey, guys. You know, it's interesting. When I, when I was uh, younger, I remember my mom used to always say that she wouldn't watch movies where children are hurt or, or killed. And I, and she said, and movies almost never do that. And I, I noticed that they really never do. They're, I've watched these movies and I'd be like, I'm pretty sure they're setting you up to think this kid's going to get hurt, but they aren't because movies basically don't do that. And I didn't understand why. And it's exactly for this reason. You, if you do that in a movie and someone is a parent, they're going to have the same reaction that they have to all the other things we've been describing, like marriage story, like immediately, doesn't matter what the context is, they're out their good time is over, and we are now in like serious shit mode. Yeah, marriage story for a bit. Of, I don't. I can't remember how much. Honestly, I was kind of working, and Amy was watching it, and I was like, "Oh, I was there for all the entertaining parts, that you know, wacky comedy parts." But once they really got into the middle of it, nope. Yeah, the tonal shift, you know, and I, I think that that's the uh, that's the ground truth. Is like uh, you know, again, like I have I have I have kids now, and so I don't experience those moments and stories at all the same as, as uh, I did before, because now I can relate. Now it's proximate. Now it's close. And I get a whole different set of emotions at a whole different intensity level. And yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's very subjective. Anyway, I don't think, I don't think it's catharsis as much um, as morbid curiosity when I do engage in things like that. Uh, that album I was talking about that it was, it was more like, like, I, I think Nathan was kind of getting to it. Like, I, maybe I should. Maybe, like It's like the curiosity. Like I kind of want to know what's in the box. Yeah, like I, I don't feel like an adult if I can't listen to the best album of the year that this man also committed so much work to and so much heart to. And I'm just like, 
nah, I want to watch Monsters. You know what I mean? Or something like that instead, some wacky thing. So I don't feel like a grown up if I can't, you know, endure that. But I don't know. I just, ooh, I don't, I don't think I need it. I'm going to listen to some musical hamburgers instead. Oh, gosh, that sounds so good. Some, some uh, Doom music. My son is really into the Doom Eternal soundtrack right now, which, which I, which I think, um, I like, I like heavy metal, I like, I like speed metal, but the, change in pace of I, I do like the album by the way but the change in the pace of the album i can't tell if it's music or a factory we call that industrial uh but you know i for a second i thought you were talking about blind guardian i was like yeah doom oh yeah no no the, the way it yeah i really do feel like an old man talking about it like <laughs> it doesn't have a melody and just makes these you know thumping pounding noises that quickly switches to another thumping pounding noises it's it's funny I take it you weren't super into Nine Inch Nails when you were younger. I I did listen to Nine Inch Nails and I liked it, but um, would you characterize them exactly the same as what you just said? Well, see, that's the thing, and I I have to pick out the songs, and I think the the the, the songs in Doom Eternal match the gameplay better than they do an album to listen to, because it moves around really fast um, and doesn't have sort of a as opposed to like. Um, you know, drum and bass or something like that, that carries a beat a little bit better. So anyway, I do like doing music. I do like uh, death metal. Please don't kill me. It's great. I love it. Honestly, I just don't like to listen to it. <laughs> uh, ready for another topic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my topic is how super Mario brothers 35 and maybe battle royales in general solved the worst unsolvable problem of multiplayer, which is that you lose half the time. That's so interesting. That that's really cool. I I saw you mention that on, on online or something. That's tell us more. <laughs> Let me know. Uh, in in Super Mario Thirty Five, I haven't played much in the way of battle royales in general, but I get the sense that it's the same sort of thing. In Super Mario Thirty Five, you are basically you're playing Super Mario Brothers, and so are thirty four other people, and you can slightly affect each other's game and. There's a countdown timer that just keeps going faster and faster, and you have to play more eff- efficiently to keep your time up. Basically, when you d- would die, when the timer runs out, or when you would die in Super Mario Brothers, you're out of the game. So, if, what, what this means is that about half the players die in like the first two minutes, and like the top five players usually last like ten or fifteen minutes. Uh, and so, the result is that. If you have a bad game, it's like a minute out of your life. And if you have a really good game, it's 15 minutes out of your life. So you can lose 10 games in a row and then get in the top five in one game. And you've spent more time winning than you did losing. Uh, So having worked on a game in in the early 2000s that did that, uh, I don't think they were the first to market. I I would argue that the first game I'm aware of that did that was Counter-Strike. But America's Army is the one that I worked on. And the way that that game did it was if uh, if a player got knocked out early in the game, it would be about 15 minutes before the game ended, which was extreme. Uh, they would be out the whole time. And what most players would do is they would leave the lobby and start another game. And so they would have that same experience. It wasn't, you know, kind of facilitated as easily. But basically, any game that has permanent death in, and, and allows you to requeue over the internet is going to have that same outcome which is like you said you're you're winning most of the time because your winning games last longer 
games where you respawn, like uh, at the contemporary of America's Army, the Unreal Tournament um, 2004, that game, you keep coming back to get obliterated again and again and again. Part of it's the shuffling of the players, right? Battlefield, right? I think does that. One of those battlefields you can keep coming in, but you spawn in different areas. What Battlefield does is is they do something else to make um, you feel like you're winning harder when you win. There's the Magic the Gathering used to have that taxonomy of players uh, they used internally. Do you remember that? Johnny was one of the sort of archetypes who like wants to win in a clever way. Doesn't need to win very often, but wants to feel like his strategies came together in the game. Where Spike is the archetype that just wants to win and will just download a, a Magic the Gathering deck off the internet and just play to win. And uh, the other one was Timmy, who, who doesn't need to win often, but when he wins, he wants to win with like all the glory. He wants to obliterate his enemy one out of I don't know how many times. So he'll have a really crappy deck that has maybe, that every once in a while gets super lucky, and he wins really hard. And that's basically the strategy that uh, Battlefield used, which was you when you're in the tank, you are uh, super overpowered, and that little window where you are unstoppable it it gives you that satisfaction of being good at the game when in fact everyone's basically taking turns essentially it's like it's as if people average in a in a non-linear way their their degree of of victory across the whole game and so everyone ends up with a greater than uh satisfactory amount of victory i think that's the very reason why so many games like uh, uh destiny and um uh, I'll, I'll remember it. My, I'm just uh, spacing out on the name of it, but it has ultimates in it. What is it? Super popular. You got League of Legends. Sure. Yeah. League of Legends has it too. I was going to say it's a first person shooter, but yeah, it is increasingly normal to have kind of a super ultimate, ultimate ability that comes up every few minutes Overwatch. where you're unstoppable. Overwatch. Thank you. God. Some people kept thinking Apex Legends. I'm like, it's not Apex Legends. God. Yeah. Overwatch. Um, and so every, you know, few minutes you are unstoppably dominant. And you're super satisfied and you feel like you're winning. Uh, and you don't need to win most of the game. You just have to win really hard at little intervals. So that's like an intermediary between the com- intensely asymmetric multiplayer like Friday the 13th, where you are the monster that has superpowers. You know what I mean? And everyone's like taking King of the Hill turns to be on top. And, you know, and there's, there's like another monster game like that, too, where you're a giant monster. and Evolve. Evolve, yeah. Really cool game, actually. Yeah, and it's cool that the that Overwatch and Battlefield are kind of, they're like in between. They're a little bit in, in the middle where they're giving that superpower out to more people, basically, to, to dominate for a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think I think that that's, that's my sense of it. The, the Royale games and Super Mario 35 do um, resolve that issue, but I think it's... It's, I don't think you have to be a Royale game to do it, but they certainly have... I think that the success of the game, sort of to your point, hinges on that. I think that, that that phenomenon is critical to the success of those games and their popularity. Uh, people have so much time winning and so little time losing overall. Have we lost you, Jim? I think so. Oh, yeah, he's not moving. We'll, we'll edit this part out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. All right, well, we'll just keep... Look, I'm just going to uh, keep running, right? Well, I mean, our audio will still work. Our audio, right, yeah. Yeah, we should wait for the host, I think. Well, maybe we can do a micro-topic. Um, <laughs> micro-topic. So you did Pathless? I did, yeah. 
That's cool. Who? What? What was that? A like a pickup team or company? No, or what? no, no. It's Giant Squid. It's um, a studio founded by Matt uh, Nava, who is the art art director, who was on, I believe, Flower and Journey, and then Abzu. There he is. You there? Uh, sorry about that. My computer reset for some reason. Wow, that was pretty quick then. Yeah, we were just. Uh, we we have my audio. I'm sure you can capture the end of that thought, but you disappeared. So um, edit it to make it work. But yeah, um, we had kind of come to a, I think an ending about that. I was just I was basically ending with uh, that. I thought you were right that the um, the Royale games um, maybe didn't invent it the idea of um, kind of winning more often than you're losing, like you were mentioning. But they definitely their popularity is is definitely related to that. That's a big reason why they are um, as popular as they are. Yeah. 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 And, and probably the, this is the first time I've noticed it because I just don't tend to play multiplayer games. Like the, the fact that I was willing to play this one was mostly the due to how it's so easy to pretend it's a single player game <laughs> because you have so little interaction with the other players. Which means you don't, you should not be playing multiplayer, Jim. if that's all you're playing (laughs) you know there's an interesting alternative take i've seen on that kind of game have you guys played oh what was the name it's it's called we didn't play test play test this at all have you played this a card game i have yeah so that game scales to like infinite people basically (laughs) to like 30 people if you wanted to uh and the reason is because it is it is truly a lot of games say this but it really has nothing to do with winning uh, it's a fairly arbitrary, random game. And on your turn, everyone else in the game gets to participate. So your turn is really more like you're leading an activity for everybody. So every turn, you're doing something. That's the reason it can scale out to that many people, is because it's always providing interaction between the players, kind of the opposite of what you were saying with, with Mario 35, but it also scales massively. Uh Unfortunately, uh, it has almost no bearing. Uh, skill has almost no bearing on the degree of success you have in that game. It's pretty much choose a number. Everyone who chose five is the winner. Uh, <laughs> so it's uh, it's a wacky, uh, ridiculous game. But it does have, I think, um, uh, it, it kind of tackles a similar problem from the opposite approach of, of maximum interaction and minimal skill. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the and the other thing that that solves is that you don't have to be good at the game to win which makes it a lot more approachable for many people Mm -hmm. we call that a party game yeah when we play scrabble what we pretend to sometimes we don't keep track of this but when we put down words we say we're going for style points so (laughs) it won't actually get number points very high but it'll be a cool word you know what i mean like that'll be a surprise and it'll just be like a bunch of ones or something but we'll go for style points and what i was just thinking was i i think i could see that in their party games but i would like to try to add that to a multiplayer or co-op action game which would be i almost i'm struggling to call it multiple win conditions but it would be like sort of like if you say you're playing a shoot 'em up just for argument and getting through the game's important but then you're also grabbing something you know as another player and you got more of that than the main player did you know like the main player's got a higher score he beat the boss but you did these other secondary win conditions and just and then you can feel good about it they did that in uh, goldeneye they did these um you know 
awards for person who got the you know longest total life and uh, the person who got uh, the armor the most often. Yeah, I feel like I've seen those, and you don't know Jack and things like that. Yeah, we, we tried to mimic those in Jamestown. We had a kind of because uh, it was a co-op game, it was a little different, but we had these little heraldries that would pop up under your player. And it wasn't the best system, but it was uh, it was a fun idea. We again, we were kind of um, trying to follow how Golden I had done that because we love that idea. The party game experience, I think, is is uh, it hinges on kind of like you're saying, participation trophies. Everyone who's decided to sit through the game, you know, needs to win sometimes and needs to have something to, to take home uh, if they sat through their 10th loss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Shall we do the next topic? Let's. Um, we should have a code word for that. Like, like, I don't know. Like a safe word? Like a safe word. Banana. Banana. This topic's dead. We're moving on. <laughs> Papaya. Cacao. <laughs> Those are great words. Cacao. This is a write-in. John asks, licensing issues and content guidelines have led to a homogenized aesthetic on YouTube that leads to all produced in bulk videos for children having the same sound effects and music. I think that's apathy. Yeah, well, that's the, that's the <laughs> produced in bulk thing, where it's like if you're trying to make a thousand of these, you're going to do it with the same thing as everybody else. Yeah, this just seems like natural economics. Like, you have licensed a bunch of audio and... Yeah. You don't want to license more for your, as I say, produced involved videos for children. I just watched the new season, uh, the, the first few episodes of the new season of Hilda on Netflix. Have you guys seen that? Yeah, yeah. Heard of it. Well, I'll tell you, they made all their own audio and they made all their <laughs> own music and they made all their own opulently animated scenes. Uh, the, the key thing here is the produced in bulk, right? It, yeah, it's produced in bulk. There's apathy toward the product. Also, like, the fact that YouTube will content ID a lot of things, even if they have legitimate sources, like you might get a, you know, you might have a, a legitimately licensed sample that you're using, but if that sample was used in a popular song, you might get content ID'd as that song. That's, yeah, even that's like a whole other problem then, you know, that you're fighting YouTube sort of to get on there. Yeah, there are a lot of, there are a lot of videos about that. On, on the internet at this point. And it sounds just like um, the onus for resolving these things falls to individuals who are disempowered from resolving the issues in a just way. And so, you know, sort of uh, systematic injustice is happening constantly to people who have not broken any rules, but have no means of resolving it uh in a just way so then they just get screwed their video gets taken down someone else gets money for it even for songs they've written themselves stuff like that yeah Um, yeah. it could be like a lack of inspiration too for you know like you said produced in bulk so then imagine someone works really hard like on the the hilda thing or maybe even a smaller smaller project they work really hard on it they produce this this children's video and then you know it comes and it goes and it's gone so it's almost like better to produce to just churn out a bunch of stuff right the shotgun strategy is very popular yeah which kind of you know ends up with that sort of quality level or just tons and tons of repeats and rehashing yeah well i i I say papaya to this one i think we have we have touched on it (laughs) uh tim your next topic is what's different better or worse about playing games with kids do you play games with your kids uh, my kid is a little bit too young to play games that I perceive as a game. Like we have this game where we have a 
a fishing rod that has Velcro at the end of it. And then there are some felt fish that he likes to like dip the fishing rod in to catch the felt fish. And like, he really enjoys that. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah. Like I, I have no mental traction on this whatsoever because it's <laughs> such a simple task, but I do it with him because it's good for him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, play, play with kids is a very different thing from play with adults. I think they're, they're, they're figuring out some very fundamental ideas. You know, I think when I play games, a lot of it's social development these days, you know, just playing with other people, just developing relationships and a lot less about like, um, and strategy, hand-eye coordination, stuff like that. Whereas even just 10 years ago, I would be playing a lot more from a strategic perspective. But but now I mostly just play kind of... I mean, honestly, I play with my son. Like, we played Pokemon. And I'm, I'm constantly... The Pokemon um, uh, card game, but not a video game. We play the Pokemon card game, and I'm, I'm like torn between two versions of myself. One that used to play these games as a kid and knows all about like how to make collectible card game decks and uh, you know, the ratios of things and, and then just about playing with my son and empowering him to express himself where he's like, I like this incredibly low power Pokemon because it's pretty. Its ability is it can heal itself for 10 damage. The end. I'm like, that's like a totally garbage card and you will just lose if you ever play that. But he doesn't care. He He's not there for that. He's there to express himself. And I'm kind of there to empower him <laughs> to do that. Yeah, I mean, at that point, like, what you want to do is find some other activity to do with this Pokemon than combat. Oh, totally. Oh, yeah. I was going to do, like, a Dungeons & Dragons-esque Pokemon session with him. Yeah. That sounds great. We did a bunch. My boys are 13 and 9, and we got into Pokemon, the card game, and we played house rules because I hated the stupid rules, and we made up our own and made it work. But we also started, you know, I'm just trying to get them... Into, into anything and like whatever they want to do. And so we started designing our own Pokemon and yeah. um, I'm pretty good at drawing and the, the kids are, I'm trying to get them into it, like to draw. And so I would have them sketch it out. And so we made a, um, a little puff um, uh, candy for Easter. What are those? Oh, peep, peeps. Peeps. Oh, yeah. We made a peep, we made a peep monster blob creature that was a Pokemon. It had a lot of fun. It had three different forms. I hope that you have pictures of this to, to put up on the page because I should do that. I should do that. We, we only finished one or two of the drawings, like, um, but but we had a lot of fun, like writing all its abilities and you know what I mean, and getting them into the, the design aspect. Um, yeah, I, I think that that's something that I feel, you know, with my kids. You know, I didn't grow. My parents um, were raising me. They had not really played games that I would consider to have real value. Like when when I play games, I actually bought the SNES um, uh, the classic, the little mini console. The mini, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I bought that with the intent of playing through my favorite games as a kid with um, with my son, and I haven't done it. And the reason is because I realized that those games don't have any real value to me. And it's not to say games don't. Like I can name probably like over a hundred games I think have tremendous value, but they're just not on that system or at least most of them aren't. I remember when I played Myst. I remember when I played Journey. I remember when, you know, I played these games that were, you know, affecting me as an adult, especially, you know, I played, um, you know, Portal or, 
uh, Stanley Parable or two that come to mind, which I found really engaging. And it doesn't have to be that you're learning something. It can also just be that the story, the human story, is illuminating, right? But that there's something valuable in it. There's something worth playing it for other than sheer gratifying entertainment. So what's... uh? Give us an example of a game that you you liked when you were a kid on the Super Nintendo and and why it doesn't stand up. Yeah, so um, I, I played the uh, Super Mario World is probably the best example. It's an incredible game, right? Like, yeah. I, I don't know anyone who would knock Super Mario World as like <laughs> as a game, right? Unimpeachable. But I realized that it's a game whose purpose is to entertain. And on some level, to, to challenge your hand-eye coordination, but it's not bringing like a human story to bear, something that illuminates your understanding of the world. It's not teaching you something that is valuable outside of the narrow band of sort of games. It's, it was valuable to me on, on various levels, but when you look at it from a comparative perspective, of what else could they be using their time for? What other forms of recreation are out there? I would so prefer for my kids to be spending their time on something that is is a fuller meal. Uh, this is kind of why they say no screen time for kids under two. It's not that it like messes them up. It's just they could be doing something else that would be of higher value. And I know from having played a lot of video games that there are essentially an infinite number of really high value video games, uh, you know, like games like The Witness, not appropriate for my son's age, but like that's a game that I found a lot. I, I sort of felt like I saw the world differently after I played it. I think that's sort of the point of it. But games like that, I think, have huge value to the player. Uh, games like you know, Gone Home, some more serious, and even just simple uh, social games that uh, develop your relationship with other people. I think those are awesome. So, yeah, I just, uh, I realized I, I, I have kind of um, a bar that is forming for me where things have to be over it for me to bring it into my house. Also, because I know that I have huge compulsion uh, problems when it comes to games and I'll be drawn into them massively. So, <laughs> I don't want my son to be drawn into something that doesn't reward him. Yeah, with something that's justifying the amount of time he's putting in. Yeah. Intense. <laughs> I mean, I like to just, you know, like I said, eat hamburgers and ice cream sometimes. So I think Super Mario World's pretty good. <laughs> it's definitely giving me pause about like, do I really need my kid to enjoy the same hamburgers and ice cream that I do? <laughs> like, it, it seems like that's not something that's really worth pushing. Not to spin as spin this off into a whole nother topic, but I think what Let's we're talking about is culture. Um, basically. And so I'm I'm not saying I want my kid to be a game obsessed design wacko when he grows up, but to a degree, if he does a hundred percent his own thing, that's fine with me. But if he's, if he's on the fence about something, I'm going to make sure he grows up to be like Nathan Fouts' son. <laughs> so if you yeah. talk to him, you'd go, Oh yeah, that's, that's his kid. I can tell. That's, like That's, that's on that's brand. A, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a Fouts. You know what I mean? Like, uh, that, yeah. so that's a Fouts would mean, oh, okay, he's got qualities of my grandparents, you know, my parents, my grandparents, and like he works on the farm. And so to me, like, that's culture. 
like it, it, it can stretch back through history and why are you interested in these things and can, you know, how did you even come to be connected to these things or why do you care about video games versus why aren't you obsessed about swimming? You know what I mean? Like he could be just really into swimming and that's fine, but that's not, I, I'm into running personally, long distance. So I take my kids long distance running. And so to me, it's like, yes, I want to make sure they know about Super Mario World. I know that's a weird thing. That's the thing. That's for me. my thing. I feel like it's not my thing anymore. Maybe that's really what it is. Is that okay. that was yeah. my thing as a kid, but now I feel like I'm like uh, I'm like I feel like what's happening, is, and it's probably a bad thing. I'll acknowledge that. Is it feels a little bit like maybe I'm like a composer. I'm like, well, you're not going to listen to Justin Bieber in this house because <laughs> even though I may have listened to music like that when I was a kid. I need you to be on brand and our brand is not that. I wonder if that's part of what it is. I think there's also something to be said for like, if you genuinely believe that like it's better to listen to better music than Justin Bieber, you want your kid to be better than you were. You want your kid to have a better life than you did. It's true. Yeah. I want to show him the good stuff. We play Super Mario World. We looked at it on the Super NES. Um, I I got the cart and we talk about, I personally, just from a design perspective, I, I would be thrilled if the kids ended up in design and we talk about the design of it all the time. So I think there's a lot of merit in it. And I think like when you look at a game like that, that's pure entertainment, that's just like pure candy or like Odyssey or something, Mario Odyssey. I think the quality of it that's exciting to me is when there are new things. Like when you see a new gameplay element or a new puzzle or something like that, that just makes me very excited. So I hope the kids, I hope my kids are excited about it that way. Yeah. Yeah, you can learn music theory from Justin Bieber songs too. You can. You totally can. And you know, uh, if someone gets super, super into uh, music through that angle, then more power to them. It's, uh, it's, it's really is, like you were saying, it's culture. It's not something I would aspire to control in other people unless they're my kids. And then I have a different perspective. Well, and I don't try to control them because I've tried to get my older son into shoot 'em ups, but and it's it's not taking. And it's like, okay. I'm worried about the opposite. I'm worried about the opposite. I'm worried I will pollute uh his natural interests with I thought it would work and he does not it just not doesn't happen and so and I don't I it's my game time is really messed up and it's like I play late at night because the kids game time and then I don't you know what I mean they're taking over the TV and so it's like a whole crazy thing and so they don't always get to see me or see what I'm playing but they ask me the next morning so I'll wake up and then the question every morning is hey dad did you play anything last night and I'll say yeah and I'll look at Ezra who's older and I'll say I played this shoot him up you want to hear about it and you know what I mean? Usually it's a no. Pass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes, I, you know, like like Ketsu or something like that. And I'll tell him about it or I'll, I'll tell him that I'm, I started playing Dragon's Crown. And which is a little bit naughty. Let's say a bit on the risque side. Yeah, so I guess I can't engage that. And so I'll um I'll, I'll be like, oh, I played this uh, Dragon's Crown. It's a beat-em-up. It's, it's pretty good. It's got really pretty art. And yeah, yeah. Probably nothing, nothing to talk about there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't. I, I I wish, but my younger one is into, um, the nine-year-old is into shoot-em-ups. And we've been, not like heavy, but, you know, we've been playing some in co-op. And um, it's fun. So. Yeah, I'm sure I'll end up playing. I'm sure I'll end up playing more stuff. For now, we've just been working through Myst. And, uh, and we've been playing Ring Fit Adventure together, taking turns. Sure, yeah. How is he taking the Myst? Oh, man. It is like... 
the greatest thing he's ever seen or done. <laughs> he won't stop talking about the puzzles, and he had he yeah he's always trying to figure out the last one we were at, and then he's like, we have to go play Mist again and figure it out, uh, tracking our progress through it, and wondering which of the two brothers is actually good, and making his theories, and it's awesome. That's awesome. How old is he? He is uh, six and a half. Oh, that's awesome. I feel like I had, or maybe still have, that, I, but I can work past it, some sort of like attention problem, because I played Mist back in the day, and I never got off the the hub island you know it's very frog fractions like in that way Mm -hmm. uh because some people don't but if you do it is a magical experience where you're like i'll be damned that actually worked and then you're (laughs) off on a journey of discovery that you did not expect that's i think i really think that's a huge part of the magic yeah i played fez i don't know 2013 2012 something like that and after Fez, I was like, it's time to go back to Mist, see what's up with that. <laughs> and getting off the Hub Island was the easiest thing ever. It was just like, oh, yes, of course you do this thing. I don't remember what that thing is now. And then a world opened up in front of me and it was like, I don't have time for this, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice world. I'm sure it's nice for other people. <laughs> Part of it was definitely that like, I was like, well, I, I took notes on loose leaf paper <laughs> in Fez, so so I didn't have like a cool like like a Grail diary at the end of the game. Mm. Uh, so yeah. I'm, I'm going to fix this with 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 mist. And I tried to like like draw sketches of what I saw, and I was just like so bad at drawing that I was just <laughs> <laughs> like, oh no, my diary See, is ruined. Like half the reason I'm playing this game. If you spend more time drawing instead of playing super mario world as a kid yeah but then you could have enjoyed mist more yep. qed <laughs> are we ready for another topic papaya that's canon now uh, unfortunately no one else like i'm gonna have two different people on the next episode so when i say papaya they'll have no idea what i'm talking about just let them know that's the thing just stare at them and when and every time you say papaya, they'll be like, "Why do you keep saying that?" Then you sort of silence on the air until they get uncomfortable. It'll be great. Uh, Nathan, your topic is: What sports would be more interesting with low slash zero gravity or with higher gravity? Yeah, I don't know. I was just I, I, I was just picturing like, do you remember that Buck Rogers episode? The old one. There was they run into a guy that's he's they're walking down a hallway and they bump into him. And he knocks them over and he's super strong. And it's because he's from a planet with super high gravity. Oh, sure. Yeah. And so he was just raised that way. So I don't know about high gravity, but I was just. Definitely going to start putting like weighted. I'm put, putting my son in armor so he grows up strong. <laughs> right? Wouldn't that be cool if that's just seaman culture? It's everything. It's just like. Yeah. My kids have a weighted blanket now. And so it's like. Maybe they're going to get super strong from that. <laughs> well, their lungs are going to get strong. And, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. It's 15 pounds. Absolutely. Yeah. The, um, the, the one that jumps to mind for me would be skateboarding. The thrill of skateboarding would just be more thrilling. More it's awesome. so fun in low gravity. Yeah. It would be so fun. You go up really uh, big arcs, you could right? Do. I uh, want to point out uh, there is a sport. Do you, know, do, you, do you know the sport slam ball? No. Is that the one where it's a box and they jump into it and it's got like a, a 
what do you call it, a trampoline at the bottom? I'm not sure if you were thinking of the same thing, but it sounds like maybe. Uh, <laughs> slam ball is basketball with trampolines. Yes, Ooh. I think. I don't, I, I don't even remember the thing I saw, but uh, it was something to do with jumping into a box of trampolines and doing tricks, so slightly different. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds pretty good, too, though. But, so like, it's you, a little bit low gravity, then. Yeah, yeah. You can, you can watch. Like, this was a... Uh, a sport that was, they were trying to to get uh, to get traction on Spike TV for a few years, so you can look up games of it on YouTube. And wait, so it was unironic, straight face. Oh yeah, real real sport. Like it's My like interest uh, is 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 peaked. It's uh, basketball <laughs> with with trampolines, and also like it's a full contact sport. Oh wow. wow, that would be some crazy like hangups in middle in midair, like like football on trampolines or something where you call out you know you tackle and i love that one where they tackle and then spin like a helicopter oh sure those are really cool looking i have to wonder if they basically were just like nba jam is awesome can we make this somehow <laughs> real yeah yeah everybody's wearing a bill clinton head yes can we set the fire the, the basketball on fire yeah do we have time for one more topic or are we out uh, let's do one more topic sure tim instead of this or do you want to talk about this because I was thinking, I was remembering that or Paddington too. Because <laughs> well, I was I was thinking like we, we talked about how I wanted to talk to you about cooking. I want to hear about cooking, and we haven't. Uh, we don't actually have a cooking topic on here. So do you want to do that instead? Let's do it. Hot topic. Yeah, sure. So Tim, why don't you tell the story you told me if you remember this, and if not, I'll tell you. Okay. Uh, you were like in a cooking co-op in college, and there was a guy who ruined some oatmeal. Oh, man. Yeah. My friend Ben. Yeah. So I, I was in a vegan commune in college and we had some atrocities that happened. Um, you know, Go ahead and tell us all the atrocities. I'll tell you all of them. So, yes. so one of them was we decided to do immersion blender night because the co-op had just got this incredibly powerful immersion blender and these giant, you know, you know, pots. And so the theme of the night we cooked for like 26 people was it's going to be all immersion blended with no uh -huh. attention made to what uh, should be immersion blended. So there was like an immersion blended <laughs> salad. There was immersion blended um, – there was like a vegan lasagna that was immersion blended. Yeah. It was it was Gosh. bad. It was super bad. <laughs> but the, that wasn't the worst. The, the, the other ones were – so we did um, flambe night. And we were like everything flambe, which honestly, pretty cool idea. And and we didn't know what, how to get alcohol that would burn, so we got 151, and we splashed that on the salad. We splashed that on the you know everything else, potatoes and flambéed everything. It turns out that it doesn't burn all the alcohol off, and we all had like four <laughs> or five shots of 151, and people got quite sick. And it turned out to be basically the worst idea ever. Like, don't dress your salad with 151; you'll feel it. <laughs> uh, but but no, so the, so the worst one. Um, and I apologize. It's, I haven't told this story in a long enough time. I'm wondering if I'll get it right. But uh, my friend Ben, every Sunday, someone was assigned to make brunch for everybody. And as like, a, you know, they'd be like our, you know, commune meeting. And Ben decided to make oatmeal because it was easy, but he didn't know how to cook at the time. So he ended up putting way too much salt into the oatmeal like like you know four cups of salt or something he just yeah. didn't know, like it's something crazy right and he had made this huge pot i mean just gargantuan like like a giant stock pot uh, gallons and gallons of this just salt oatmeal and he had this thought was like god how can i fix this what can i do and he realized that we had this enormous bag of chocolate chips 
so he was like, you know what would fix this is if I put chocolate chips in. Sure. Sweetness cuts the salt. And yeah, it cuts the salt, right? So then he stirred it up. And of course, it's just, it's now it's just deep brown, inedible, salty <laughs> mush. And he's so ashamed that he just leaves it out on the table and it goes. And everyone wakes up uh, for brunch, comes to the room and sees this, this pot full of some sort of brown goo and oh. then serve up bowls of it. Anyway, it was uh, it was the worst meal uh, anyone's ever had at that particular <laughs> comedy, which is really saying something. Um, anyway, Jim, why, why were you curious to hear that story? Oh, I just wanted to, to – I thought it would kick off a conversation. Indeed. Some people should not be allowed to cook. But, but also, a lot of cooking is about learning how to fix your mistakes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Like when you're, you can follow a recipe, but if you fuck it up, you have to be able to then like, how can I improvise around this and make it be a good meal anyway? I did that this weekend. In this case, I don't know if there was anything to do (laughs) except (laughs) make 10 times as much oatmeal as you were going to. If you put that much salt in, then I say you dump, just restart. You just dump. Yeah. It it was good money after bad. Uh, Definitely a mistake. This weekend I actually made a, um, I wouldn't say a comparable mistake, but a significant mistake. We make whiskey cakes with my family every year, and um, they're pretty expensive to make and a lot of work. You like soak whiskey, fruits and whiskey, and like you eat tons of butter in it, and it's a pretty serious endeavor. And in the chaos of trying to make this with my two children, uh, I neglected to put in the white sugar, uh, of which there's about two cups, and only put in a cup of brown sugar. So there was more like a sort of a whiskey bread, but um, my mom was was like in like three seconds. She's like, "Okay, here's what we're gonna do." When we realized it had happened, we had our first bite of it after it had come out of the oven. She's like, "Here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna make bread pudding." And so she got out a bread pudding recipe and like made like this whole custard, and then put the whiskey bread into the custard and it soaked up all the sweet bread pudding and then it became caramelized and had like this little crust of sugar on top and it was way better than those whiskey cakes ever were (laughs) 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 and so i think you know there is truth which is learning how to fix your mistakes is uh is not only fruitful but it might steer you to serendipitously discover something even better than what you were trying to do yeah yeah that's good that's that's a good that's a good moral So we're not going to talk about Paddington too, am I right? Okay, how much? I I don't know how long we've been recording for. I gotta go. My, I gotta go to dinner here. Basically, Aim's done cooking. So, okay, it, it, let's let's end it then. Okay, Paddington two next time. Yeah, agreed. It's a good moral at the end. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Tim. If this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? I am working at Giant Squid Studios. Uh, you can find me on their web page. And find an adorable bio that I wrote myself awkwardly to introduce myself to random people I don't know. And you could be just such a person. Go there and check out my bio. (laughs) And Nathan, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Sure. I'm I'm Mommy's Best Games on Twitter. And you can check out mommysbestgames.com. And I actually just started a physical online store where I'm selling limited run piggy ball PS4 boxes. And you can oh, buy nice. one of those. Merch. And if you merch. And if you want, um, I got some physical merch I'm selling. And if you want 
the most insane unboxing experience in your entire life. Better than anything Apple's ever made. You should buy one of my barf-sealed PS4 games. That sounds very good. It is. Piggy Ball's got a lot of barf in it. Pixelated green barf. And I have. I am now sealing my games in green glowing wax. And you get to unseal it and open it. And it is super satisfying. <laughs> that but yeah, I'm, I'm, awesome. I'm in Mommy's Best Games Online. So I shall see you there. All right. Very good. All right. Thanks so much for being on. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, man. This is awesome. It was a pleasure as always. Tim, good to meet you. Yeah, likewise. And, uh, and you got to have me on again to talk Paddington too. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. You can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.